The following is an emergency podcast episode about the war in Ukraine. All monetization of this episode will be going to Global Givings Ukraine Crisis Relief Fund. Please consider making a donation yourself. Link in the show notes. China's foreign policy and the EU response today, recording on Sunday the 27th. Today we have here with me Ivana Karaskova, who is the... Map and Friends leader and also the leader of China observers in Central and Eastern Europe, the acronymist CHOICE. Let's start off with... 100,000 people showing up on the streets today in Prague. What is driving, um, you know, before we get into the sort of political response and the sanctions and, and, and you know, air flight restrictions and whatnot, what, what, what's driving so many people's revulsion with, uh, with what's happening in Ukraine? Well, Prague is not an exception, as you said, Jordan. There have been protests everywhere in Riga, in Warsaw, basically anywhere you look in Central and Eastern Europe, you will see demonstrations of supporting Ukraine and condemning the invasion of Russia into, into Ukraine. When it comes to the Czech Republic, well, uh, we are a heavily traumatized nation. We have been occupied twice uh, in 1938 by Hitler's Germany and in 1968 by Soviet Union. So we are quite familiar with having tanks, uh, having occupiers on our lands and so on. And we well, did uh, fight, but we basically lost. So there's a heavy trauma. So showing in support of Ukraine, showing showing and condemning the invasion is basically something we feel that there is this moral obligation um, to do. And turning now to the political response, um, what you know, how how much is that? How how much of that sort of moral revulsion do you think is driving um, uh, is driving what's happening at the political level? Because you know there are plenty of other arguments in favor. I mean. You know, we're, we're we're falling off of a base of people having, um, you know, r- much more mixed opinions when it comes to how to deal with um, deal with Putin and China. Well, I have to say that I'm honestly as well surprised as probably you are, because we are used to think about European Union as being incredibly slow, bureaucratic, being driven by Germany, which for its own historical trauma is not willing to engage. It's uh, basically advocating non-action and trying to do the trade, uh, change through trade approach with Russia, but also with China. So I am actually surprised. I would never dreamed of seeing something like that just in Wednesday and it's Sunday. And w- what we do see is incredible level of sanctions targeting every single area, be it economy, be it military, be it, uh, be it uh, the uh, support of hackers being it we have seen which is not the eu but basically we still think of them as part of the eu sometimes we have seen the british foreign minister saying that she will personally support every single brit which is willing to go and fight for ukraine so these are things which i have never imagined i would see in my life um there are two very powerful narratives circulating within the eu uh, the first one is that Putin is a new Hitler, and we are in a very similar situation as in 1938 when it comes to Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic and Slovakia, or in 1939 when it comes to Poland. And the second very powerful narrative is that this is the September 11th moment for Europe. And these are two very, very symbolical narratives, something we have not dealt with personally in the past. So now it basically is bubbling up everywhere. And when we talk about 27 EU member states, 12 of them are in Central and Eastern Europe. So we are talking about 12 heavily traumatized countries, which basically pushed 
together with the other allies as well, of course, pushed Germany to reconsider its policy, the policy it has been uh, advocating for for the past 30 years. So that's quite a powerful, actually, achievement. Let's go one level deeper on uh, on on Germany, because I think, you know, it, it's 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 not super surprising um, that the Poland that Poland and Czech Republic and the Czech Republic that the Poland's and Czech Republics of the world would feel so strongly about what's happening in um, uh, in Ukraine, given the history and, and historical ties. But I'm curious, um, what do you think was the sort of tipping point or confluence of factors that really led um, led to the changes in, in German policy, as you alluded to? Well, I think there were probably two two items on the table or two narratives, if you if you wish. The first one was, of course, this um, let's say meant moral argument, which was most likely meant by the um, Polish representative Morawiecki, where he visited uh, Olaf Scholz and basically told him, which we don't know what he what he told him, but I can imagine that he probably told him act now or you will be seen as basically helping another Hitler. And that's uh, that's quite powerful, I think, when it, when it comes from Poland. So one was probably, let's say, emotional blackmail, if you want, or using this, this kind of narrative. And the other one is that Central and Eastern European countries showed that they are willing to act, that they that there are citizens who are basically demanding that they act, that they supply weapons to Ukrainians. Um, so it was now or never, and the EU talking about its strategic autonomy, if the EU would not do anything, that would mean that it will lose 12 out of its member states who will single-handedly basically ask the US to establish permanent bases on its territory and defend them and basically honor the, the NATO, um, NATO articles So in case they are, uh, they are attacked. And Russia invading Ukraine, and if Ukraine is actually um, will be a part of uh, the Russian territory, that would mean that we will have direct boundaries, direct uh, frontiers with Russia, and that's increasingly um, problematic. Problematic because it may mean that there is going to be, or there is a high likelihood of a conflict with the Russian Federation. So I think that was also a strategic argument that if um, Germany not reconsider its position that it may lead towards really having the U.S. not only somewhere, you know, across the pond, but having the U.S. heavily present in Central and Eastern Europe. Ivana, how how, how much of um, Ukraine's, uh, you know, Ukraine's resistance and this this not being a war that ended in two days uh shape the 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 central and the central european and ultimately european response i would just speculate because i i have no idea and it's quite recent and and the situation changes every day with every hour so it's quite difficult to say but i also think that perhaps coronavirus epidemic played some role in this as well that's we basically need to see some good stories. Uh, we need to see some heroism and something um, and so something great happening again. So that may be one, one of the reasons as well um, behind that. But if I may perhaps just continue the, the idea about how this is going to change the Europe, um, the, the European security architecture, 
um, no matter what will happen to Ukraine, definitely Putin basically achieved one single goal, and that's that we would like to reshape our European security architecture, but not in the way he probably intended. So that means that um, it would not be justifiable now not to basically increase the, the military spending. Germany already announced that they will um, they will spend 2% of their GDP on military spending, which is a huge amount of money. Um, I have seen analysts saying or numbers saying that if they actually do that, they will spend more on the military than Russia and France together. So, And, and the other countries will have to follow that. Um, well, sometimes when I look at the tweets on you know, how many weapons are now sent to Ukraine on basically hourly basis, um, you know, pledges from Denmark, pledges from Sweden, uh, Germany, and so on. It seems like um, you know, game of card poker where you basically want to beat yeah. you know, your, <laughs> someone you are playing cards with. No, I will give more RPGs than your country and so on. So um, it's interesting really to see the dynamics, um, emotions behind that. And um, what is now also important is to think about really how to structure the security architecture after that. And um, I think it's quite visible that the military spending will have to happen here, here after the invasion. Yeah, I mean, it's. That said, it is really sad still seeing videos of Ukrainian soldiers who don't have helmets and body armor. And I think it's worth sort of reflecting that this is also, you know, uh, uh, probably people feeling really guilty uh, in these in these capitals that that these um, uh, that these that these armaments and support weren't um, weren't in Ukrainian hands three months ago. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There is a. um lot of you know self-reflection on that and feeling shame that uh, this didn't happen before but on the other hand there is also the moral high ground if you wish um because putin was repeatedly told off to rethink the invasion not to do that to keep maintain the peace and so on and he basically underestimated the european response heavily um and he was thinking probably that europeans are those you know guys and girls with lattes and and glued to their air phones discussing gender equality and talking about climate change that's that was basically wrong that's uh, yes we do that of course but in in times of crisis um this is going you know out of the window and we focus on survival did did history ever really end for eastern europe that's a good question huh no, I don't think so. I don't think so. As long as, as we have authoritarian regimes basically attacking and advancing to the borders, that's, that didn't happen, really. And China is actually falling into the same category of the countries. Um, there are countries are already calling spade the spade, the Czech Republic, for example, the, um, the broadcasters, the, the, um, you know, talking yeah. heads during the, well, well one second, let's, 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 let's stay away from, let's stay away from, Ivana, let's stay away from China for one second. Let me okay. let me rephrase my question because I, maybe I can ask it a little tighter. Like, was you know the the '90s and early 2000s were a special time in 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 in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, and and I'm curious, you know, to what extent that that sort of moment of not being stressed out, you know, about existential crisis has kind of had ever left the body the body politic in that 
or 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 sort of was that fear and anxiety always always lurking um you know just one or two um uh, uh one or two layers below the surface i think it's the lighter um it's still uh, it was still lurking somewhere and there ha- there is basically a divide between central and eastern europeans and western europeans um where central and eastern europeans warned repeatedly Western Europeans that Russia is not to be trusted, that Russia is a problem, that Putin is actually a problem and his regime is a problem. Um, and they were labeled as, you know, warmongers or paranoids. Um, and now it's, you know, good time to say we told you, but on the other hand, it would have been better if this uh, cognitive dissonance was not there in the first place. Ivana, how, if at all, is this going to reshape European uh, views and policies towards China going forward? Um, that's a good question, really, because so far we have been focusing on Russian Federation heavily, and China has been seen as relative newcomer to the region, as um, you know, the power we do not understand well. We don't have that much historical connection with. Um, because apart from some of the countries in Western Balkans, um, we considered China to be basically an enemy during the whole Cold War. We were on the side of Soviet Union, which regarded Chinese um, communism as uh, basically a deviation of the pure communist communism. So um, Central and Eastern European countries didn't study China. We do have really great sinology focusing on language and culture and so on, but not on modern China, not on political science, basically. So. There was there is a little understanding still about China, uh, what it is and and so on. But um, by extension to what we know about Russia, I do see that the perceptions are quite similar on the fact that it's an authoritarian regime. So that's uh, basically shaping very much the perceptions of Central and Eastern Europeans and China helping and supporting the Russian narrative in international space is, of course, not going unnoticed. So let's now turn to the view from Beijing, because at some level, they have to be aware of these trade-offs, right? What do you think, uh, maybe start off if we want to play the speculation game, what do you think was was going through Xi's head as this uh, as this war started and, and as it's evolving? How's he, how's he feeling about uh, the situation he's in right now? Okay, if it's a speculation game, um, and I can be a novelist, basically, coming up with anything, um, well, then I would be... Um, I would think that he basically knew about um, what was what was coming, that Putin probably told him on February 4th during the Olympic Games that um, the uh, invasion or the plans for Ukraine are this or that, um, that China was not surprised by the invasion and so on. What is quite interesting for me, if I may take it from the speculation to the real reality, is how the narrative changed, actually from the Chinese side, that they started first saying quite, quite in a cautious way that they do understand Russian concerns regarding the the enlargement of NATO. And then now, a couple of days later, they basically talk about that the war in Ukraine was started by NATO. It was started by the U.S. So it's no longer that we acknowledge Russian position is this and that. It's basically they now own this position. And it's quite interesting. So either they basically changed the position or it was a smokescreen from the prior beginning. I don't know. 
Do you think Beijing understands how much this is changing uh, views in Europe? No, I think they also underestimated Europeans, thinking that they are weak, that they will always preset economy for and comfort. And, and we basically do, unless we basically feel that we are uh, threatened for life. So I think that they were basically miscalculating the same way as Moscow was, was doing. Um, what, what else do you want me to ask uh, Ivana about the Chinese side? Oh, let me think. I no longer know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired as well. <laughs> Um, maybe if, if I can ask you a question and then, then I will think about uh, what basically yeah, sure. my perception here is that the U.S. is heavily underreported in the European press. Like all the information we are now consuming are about the Ukraine, about the invasion, about Russia, just a little bit, tiny bit about China, lots about uh, intra-European affairs and almost nothing about the U.S. And I'm just thinking whether this you know, from the U.S. Side point of view or U.S. side, is this intentional? How do you basically see American reaction? Because is the U.S. doing something? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, as a human being, am in a weird bubble, uh, you know, as the, as the, I guess, fourth generation of some Eastern European Jews. Uh, who works in foreign policy that everyone in my little universe is very, uh, very, very focused on this. Um, I think what you've seen uh, is a real, well, first off, I'm very happy we have uh, Joe Biden and not uh, Donald Trump in the presidency right now, because, um, you know, Trump would have, would have, would have responded very differently. I think there's kind of no doubt about it. So, so so what's what has the Biden response been? You know, there's been this a real sort of uh, triumph, I guess, of the U.S. intelligence community and in knowing that this was happening and trying to lay the foundation. I thought it was really interesting, the story that came out in The New York Times of um, America trying to warn China that this was happening and, and sort of begging Xi to tell Putin off and tell him it was a bad idea. Um, you know, who knows if that who knows if you never know with that sort of reporting how. Uh, how 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 real it is? Yeah, it felt like making the link, you know, between Russia and China. Um, you know, also, you know, you you know, let's not forget China. It's responsible as well. They knew they didn't act, and so on. We warned them. Yeah. So never know. And and I think you know, it's 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 relatively easier for uh, the U.S. to put these sanctions on than than Europe because the sort of like you know percentage GDP hit that America is going to be taking for throwing all the Russian banks offline and, and stopping exporting to, to, uh, to Russia is a lot lower than a lot uh, than, than what uh, European countries are about to have to stomach um, in, in, uh, at the level the, the sanctions currently are and are likely going to be trending in the next few days. So um, it's, it's, the response has been uh, large. I mean, you know, it's, I don't know how much skin off America's back it would have been to like, you know, 2x or 3x the amount of um, uh, amount of aid that has been uh, the amount of military aid that has been going so far. But I think um, I think it's been really I think it's I think it's not surprising. Um, I'm personally I, I, I'm more surprised at the ferocity of the European response than I am with the U.S. because I think this is uh, uh, this was this was. America trying to go for the maximalist position on this sort of thing was pretty 
um, was pretty baked in, in my view. I mean, the, the question now uh, I have is to what extent uh, this is going to, you know, bring focus away from China. Um, but I actually think that the, um, uh, the sort of aperture for foreign policy focus and competitiveness and military spending across the board is going to go up a lot after this sort of thing. And I, I, I think I think thinking of of sort of pivot to Asia or whatever as a zero sum game um, with limited resources is not the right frame is not the frame that's going to take hold. I think I think more it's going to be uh, American uh, pol- policymakers and policy politicians looking at the world as a dangerous place and um, sort of responding accordingly by by sort of putting more attention and, and, and more spending and uh, you know, more, uh, you know, a wider aperture on the table for, um, for doing things with, um, with, with allies to, to sort of shore up defenses. I mean, I think the ability for the U S to, to mobilize global sanctions and get Japan on the board and, 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 and Singapore signing up for sanctions all, I mean, I think that is a real testament to, uh, to what, to the, to the um uh, to the work that Biden's the Biden administration has put in over the past year of building these bridges because if it, it's hard to kind of get that level of coordination if you haven't already been working at it and you don't know and you don't know you know who the who the right names are and you don't have sort of working relationships which have been built over the course of um the past year in a way which they weren't um uh in the in the four years prior so I'll give them top top marks for that for sure. Um, and we'll just have yeah. to see. I mean, you know, we're we're now getting into the danger zone, right? Because the West has played their card, and Putin's about to uh, uh, of 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 the sort of dramatic uh, escalation and sanctions and the and 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 sending arms and whatnot. Um, but Putin's about to play his, and we're not, and no one really knows what that's going to be. Is that going to be a um uh, a, a, a a really awful, violent, you know, carpet bombing of these cities. Is that going to be a negotiation? Uh, is that going to be a nuclear weapon dropped on, um, uh, uh, you know, or tactical nuclear weapons dropped on uh, Ukrainian positions? People don't really, people don't really know. But I think, uh, uh, as you as as you said, I think the the U.S. domestic response, um, the the magnitude of that, I think is was was pretty predetermined, but. Um, using uh the tools of diplomacy and and um uh using the tools of diplomacy to get the entire world on this i think uh, the biden administration should get a fair amount of credit for let's talk about the un a little bit what 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 do you see as the dynamics uh going on there well the the fact that china abstained uh from the first vote on the resolution condemning a russian attack was quite expected that's that's the no surprise the fact that india also abstained uh, no surprises there as well though i think that when they met uh, when they are going to meet through the quad uh, format there is going to be some awkwardness with the us regarding that but historically speaking there has been always a very high correlation of the votes between china and russia and between china and india much higher than that ever was a high correlation between china and the us so this was basically expected um what is going to be very interesting is that today the security council is going to vote about another resolution uh, for whether the general assembly will be um will uh, will vote uh, regarding the resolution on ukraine um because it needs only nine member states to vote uh, for and during the previous uh, resolution they already had 11 that's quite sure that this is going to to pass to, tonight um and 
then we will see General Assembly basically taking position on that. So 193 member states will be asked about whether they vote for, against, or abstain. And that's going to be a very interesting moment because if they choose, they can actually say why they vote, the, the way they vote. So we may actually get some more of information on whether China is going to abstain on, and so on. And China has been positioning itself as the, the leader of the developing countries, the leader of G77 club. So we may see, and that may be interesting, how the voting will go regarding the African countries, the countries where China, to which China um, delivered a lot of uh, official development assistance, where China basically invested into and so on. So that may be quite telling regarding coalitions and the positions, uh, not so much on Russia and Ukraine, but I think on the U.S. and China. Um, Ivana, I'm trying to close these interviews on a somewhat optimistic note. I talked to Matei about the summer I spent in Bratislava going to the Pohoda Music Festival, which was this like really happy, like left wing thing. I wonder if you have any like like music festival memories to share weirdly about uh stuff in the Czech Republic is this is this something that was on your uh radar at one point in life or uh yeah we have also the um, very interesting it's called colors of ostrava and ostrava is this uh, very strange well I'm progress so I call everyone strange who is living outside of the capital but this is really a strange region it's a very um down to earth region with a um, lot of coal mines old coal mines and so on so the um the festival is taking place is one of in uh, one of the like decommissioned coal mining uh place or area and it's usually quite cool so you can visit. Okay, we'll put it on that. Put it on the agenda. Thanks so much for being a part of China Notch. Thanks a lot, Jordan.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A-Cash, A-Cash, A-Cash recommends. recommends.